Well, thank you all very much. It's a great pleasure for me to get to be here. I've always wanted to come here, and it's a great pleasure to get to be in this beautiful chapel. It's possible that it'll be more of a pleasure for me than for you, um, partly because, you know, I'm a, um, I'm a Methodist Sunday school teacher, and the Sunday school teacher, at least in the backwoods churches where I am, is always sort of down in the basement with the Sunday school, in my case, busily relearning the story of Noah's Ark week after week. And I think that probably a lot of Sunday school teachers suffer from a kind of pulpit envy, you know. Um, (laughs) So it's possible that I may be up here for quite a while um, (laughs) talking at y'all. I want to talk, since this is a college and y'all are smart people, I want to talk about um, some of the intellectual work that I've been doing in this, goes into this book, Deep Economy. But if you'll forgive me for a moment at the start, I really will talk about what I've been doing some the last year, um, partly as a way to say thanks to the people here at at Colorado College who organized one of these uh, demonstrations that we did last spring, and I'm really grateful for that, and and in hopes that people will take the opportunity to organize another one uh, for November 3rd this year. I know that November 3rd falls on the date of the um, Army Air Force football game, so there may be other things going on in Colorado Springs, but perhaps this can be a kind of accompaniment to that. Um, I'm not, by background and training, really an activist, you know. I'm a writer. Writers, almost by definition, are people who are improperly socialized and like to sit in their rooms and and tap away at the keyboard and come out every once in a while and things. Um, And much of the work that I'd done over the years on climate change had been from that perspective. But last summer, well, I'd spent some time in Tibet and in parts of India doing some work for the National Geographic and for Harper's and, of course, you can't be in that part of the world. I, you know, we were out in very, very remote parts of Tibet where they hadn't let Westerners go in quite a while. And, of course, every time you sort of turn a corner in the road, there in the distance there's somebody prostrating themselves on the way to Lhasa or to Mount Kailash, you know, these six- or eight-month journeys where you just, each step, you prostrate yourselves along the road. And then I got to India, and of course, if you're attentive, it's very hard to be out in village rural India without sort of tripping over uh, traces of of Gandhi and that history. And I think that must have primed me, because when I got back to Vermont, where I live, I was just in a kind of state of some despair about how little was going on uh, in our response to the biggest problem that we've ever faced as a species, you know? This was even after Hurricane Katrina, even after Hurricane Gore, you know, and that wonderful movie and, and all of that. But still, there was nothing really happening, no legislation, no, nothing on the scale that we need to have. And so in uh, in sort of despair, started calling just a couple of friends of mine, other writers mostly, and say, look, we got to do something. 
Let's walk up to Burlington, which is our main city, and, and let's uh, sit in at the federal building. And we'll get arrested. And at least there'll be a story in the newspaper, and something will have happened. And, you know, this is from small acorns, great oaks grow, you know, whatever. And um, so being writers, they, okay, we'll go along. We'll do it, whatever. And um, happily, somebody, I think actually one of the few students that was involved in this early planning had enough good sense to call up to the police department in Burlington and ask what would happen if we did this thing, if we went and sat in on the... And the answer from the police department in Burlington was, nothing will happen. Um, you can sit in on the steps of the federal building as long as you want, and, you know, we'll come visit once in a while, but that'll be it. Um, um, the implication was that we would sort of need to burn down the federal building. And so we calculated the carbon emissions for that and, and decided instead that we'd do this kind of pilgrimage, you know. We called everybody that we knew or emailed everybody that we knew and three weeks later set out on this walk. We left from Robert Frost's old summer writing cabin up in the Green Mountains because we kind of liked that most cliched of all high school English class poems about the road not taken, you know, and it seemed apropos, and off we set. And for five days we walked and we did um, programs in churches at night and slept in fields and things. And by the time we got to Burlington, there were a thousand people marching, which for Vermont is a lot of people. Um, um, biggest demonstration about anything there had been in a long time. And it was enough to get all of our candidates for federal office to come for our final rally down on the shore of Lake Champlain. And not only did they come, they all signed on to this um, pledge that we had, which was really quite ambitious to demanding an 80% cut in carbon reductions by 2050 at the time, by far the most radical thing that people had proposed. And, and it wasn't just you know, our wonderful socialist Senator Bernie Sanders who signed on. It was the conservative Republicans, too, who were running for office. In fact, the woman who was running for Congress on the Republican ticket, the adjutant general of the State National Guard, had said two months before when she announced her candidacy that she wasn't sure that global warming was real and more research, she said, needed to be done. It turned out... And for me, this was a really important discovery, and you know, really important. It turned out that the more research that needed to be done was how many people were going to walk across the state of Vermont. And, and the system worked the way that it's supposed to, the way that they sort of tell you it does. You know, people made that demand. And, she signed right onto this pledge, and in fact, she spent the rest of the campaign running TV commercials showing her signing this pledge. In fact, she photoshopped out all the names of everybody else who'd signed. Um, um, but it was, it was striking. And it made us the only part that was a kind of downer, okay, was to open the newspaper the next morning and read a story that said that this thousand people might have been the largest demonstration about climate change that there had yet been in this country. We decided to see if, you know, it was possible to do on a national scale what we'd done there. And so, as Wade said, with six of six students, people, kids who were just about to graduate from college, 
the seven of us set up this website, <clears throat> stepitup07.org, and started sending emails and organizing the extent we could. We didn't have any money, and we didn't have any, you know, lists of names or anything. We just started sort of blindly going out into the universe. Our secret hope was that we might organize a hundred of these demonstrations, which would have been a hundred more than there had been before. Um, we didn't tell anyone because it seemed grandiose. But instead, because of people like the people here at, at Colorado Springs who organized the one here, the thing just went in some kind of viral, wild thing. And, and 11 weeks later, with no money really being spent, we'd had 1,400 of these demonstrations going on simultaneously. It was really moving to watch it happen. And it was just as if we'd given people just the slightest permission, the slightest sort of crack in which to stick the screwdriver and start kind of jimmying things. And people just figured out how to do it all on their own. And it was wonderful to see. I'm going to come back to this description of these things at the very end of my talk, okay? I'm going to try to, for a little while instead, to kind of go in a much more intellectual and slightly abstract way, okay? But the one thing I want you to bear in mind, because it's important for the other stuff I want to say here, is just to sort of the most significant thing about these demonstrations, the most interesting thing about them, was that, in fact, there were 1,400 of them in 1,400 different places. We didn't have a march on Washington, okay? Just bear that in mind, and I'll see if I can figure out how to kind of make this talk wind up back at that point, because I think it's important. And instead, for a little while, I want to talk sort of about this most recent book of mine, this book, Deep Economy, which is a kind of subversive and, and a radical book in certain ways because it takes as its premise a question that we're probably going to have to answer if we want to deal uh, with climate change, among other things. And that question is whether the default assumption of our society is really working anymore, the default assumption being that growth is good and that more is better. That's the most important idea in America. And the question is whether or not it's any longer true. If you don't think it's the default assumption, just turn on the news any night, and the good, objective, neutral newscaster will, when they reach the economic portion of the program, say something like, good news on the economic front today, uh, uh, the GDP has grown 3%. And it would never occur to them to say, troubling news on the economic front today, housing starts are up 5%. Even though all of us, if we really sat and thought about it, could come up with a few reasons why it might be at least a mixed blessing, that there was another ring of subdivisions going in around the edge of wherever we were. We don't stop and think about it in a sense. That's what a default assumption is. And it's true in every part of our culture. I don't... Do, Probably there's a few people in here, I'm guessing, who listen to public radio, yes? Um, do they play out here that economic show Marketplace on your public radio? Do you ever hear that? Well, I, I, it always seems to be on when I'm doing things. And it's the perfect example because it's this show they do every night about economics. And if the stock market has gone up, they play happy music on this show. 
And if the stock market's gone down, they play sort of a dirge, you know. I mean, it couldn't be any sort of more just... It's easy to understand exactly why, where the momentum for that growth came from. It wasn't that long ago that, you know, most of us didn't have all that much in our society, in our nation. I was... um. My, I'm being nostalgic about my daughter because we just finished reading the last, uh, she just turned 14, and I'm pretty sure the last book she's going to have let me read her is the last installment of Harry Potter, and only because we've been reading them all the way through since she was in kindergarten. But it made me think of all the books we'd read together, and one of the favorite series that she loved most of all were the Little House on the Prairie books, yes, which probably a lot of you have read at some time or another, this kind of American portrait of who we are and where we come from and things. Um, um, and they're described, this family, rich in community, rich in connection within their family, and unbelievably poor in stuff, you know. Christmas comes and there's a, an orange or a penny or maybe a rag doll. It's easy to understand why the sort of desire for a kind of uh, escape velocity out of that sort of um, um, penurious existence led us to some of the attitudes that we have. And it's actually really interesting to go and spend time in other parts of the world that are quite poor still and, and see that firsthand. I've, as I said, spent a lot of time in China recently reporting. And to go into rural China is remarkable experience. I mean, it's poor in a way that we find it very difficult anymore to imagine in our lives. Um, people, in much of China, the average agricultural holding is about a sixth of an acre for a family, and it's played out land. And people are played out before very long, you know. You meet people who look like they're 80, and in fact, they're 35. It's just they've been working so hard for so long. I spent some time at a uh, shower curtain factory north of Beijing uh, because I really wanted to see what the industrializing China looked like. And this was not particularly Dickensian. As Chinese factories went, it was okay. And all the kids there, everybody there was 18 to 22, all the workers. So it's just like you know most of the people here at Colorado College, except instead of studying, they were making shower curtains. They were all very clear that this was better than the alternative of trying to survive back on the, that played-out land where they'd come from. I remember walking through the dormitories where these kids were staying, and they were okay. Girls were living four to a room um, in bunk beds, and most of the bunk beds had a stuffed animal on them. So that afternoon, I was interviewing a young woman, a 19-year-old, and, and, and just trying to make small talk so she would relax a little bit in the company of this um, odd stranger asking her questions. And I asked her what kind of stuffed animal she had. And the minute that I asked the question, I knew it was the wrong one because her eyes just filled up with tears. If she was 19, she really liked stuffed animals. She'd never had one because every yuan that she made had to go home. You know, they were trying to put her brother through school. Her parents were sick, whatever. 
Obviously, by the end of the day, she possessed the largest stuffed animal in that corner of China. Um, she was happy to get it much more beautifully. All the other kids at this place were really happy to see her get it. It was quite sweet. But what it brought home for me was just the, the sort of oddness of our lives. You know, my daughter likes stuffed animals too. But the biodiversity of beanie babies in her bedroom is roughly that of the Peruvian Amazon, you know. Um, um, and hence, you know, a new stuffed animal is, you know, cause for celebration for about two and a half milliseconds, you know. Um, the economist would say that the marginal utility of the next beanie baby is surprisingly low. Okay? We don't live in Little House on the Prairie anymore. Increasingly, we tend to live in an oversized house on the cul-de-sac. And, and hence, it behooves us, perhaps, to try and develop a different set of attitudes about that um, growth culture that we're so wrapped up in, particularly because that growth culture, that growth economy, is starting to cause us a couple of really difficult problems. I'm going to talk just briefly about the most obvious one, the one I've spent my life working on, the ecological one. Suffice it to say that the only thing that's changed in the 20 years that I've been working on global warming is that we understand now that both the scale and the pace of this problem is much worse, much greater than we had known. And frankly, there are times, and this month is one of them, when the data coming back from the real world is so frightening that it's almost impossible to contemplate it without, uh, without just trembling. Um, you know that everything frozen on the face of the Earth is now melting, and melting pretty rapidly. Arctic sea ice being a good example. Arctic sea ice tend to always reaches its minimum in September, okay? That's the, been the, you've had the summer to melt everything and, and long days are you know, lasting and that momentum carries the melt into September. September of 2005, September 21st, set the record minimum for Arctic ice, 5.32 million square kilometers. Okay? That was down about 30% from the average over the last 30 years, a big change. We blew past that record on about August 16th or 17th this year. We've been, we've been losing an area for the last few weeks, an area the size of the United Kingdom every week has been melting. Okay? Um, we're now down as of yesterday at about 4.24 million square kilometers. We've beaten the old record by more than a million square kilometers by 20%, something like that, as one ice scientists said it's as if it's just fallen off a cliff. And of course, it's going to be almost impossible for that ice, all of it, to refreeze again because that water is now warm, you know, instead of this nice white mirror that reflects 80% of the sun's rays back out to space, we've now got big patches of blue that are absorbing about 80% of that incoming solar radiation. The Northwest Passage opened last week for the first time in recorded history. The world is changing at an enormous rate. And if you think it's not connected to 
the pace of our economic life and the demand for endless growth, you only need to look at what our president's been saying for the last six years about why he's unwilling to do anything about it. Every time he says we don't want to do anything that will hinder our economic expansion. And if we don't want to do that, think what the Chinese and the Indians don't want to do because their economic growth is still pulling people out of the most dire kinds of poverty. Um, it is an enormous conundrum and one that we can't put off for 10 or 20 years. Uh, uh, it demands that we begin to rethink the world and rethink it rapidly. But the ecological argument in a certain way is the less interesting one. Um, because we know it and because it's so obvious and so powerful. In certain ways, I'm more interested or as interested now in a lot of the work I've been doing in the last few years, has to do with a kind of uh, separate question, which is whether or not this endless economic growth and expansion is actually doing what it says it's supposed to, i.e. making us any happier. And that's a very interesting question, and a question that's only recently we've begun to formulate ways to ask. In certain ways, it's akin to global warming, a subject we only really recognized or understood 20 years ago, the beginning, and that we've had to really scramble to devise instruments and indexes to really understand. So too, the question of whether or not people were happy or satisfied with their lives was one that academia basically punted on for a very long time. It seemed too broad and too ephemeral. Um, and how would you measure it? It didn't seem possible to just ask people whether or not they were satisfied with their lives and have any idea that that might yield useful result. And so we've tended to stick with the proxy offered by the economists, the concept of utility, basically the idea that you could tell what made someone happy by what they bought. Um, in the last 10 years, though, working from a wide variety of disciplines, people have tried to grapple with that question and see if maybe there wasn't a more direct way of getting at some of those answers. And it depended first, and really it was economists who did this work, many of them, it depended on, on first figuring out whether it really did, was possible to measure subjective well-being. Being economists, many of them began in sort of grim and unhappy ways. Um, the, um, the, uh, one of the first studies in the, there's a sort of pretty interesting book, classic book called Hedonics, the search for a, a sort of study of pleasure. And the first, the first experiment, uh, uh, described in it involved interrupting patients every 10 seconds during colonoscopies to ask them how they were feeling. Um, 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 you know, and now how are you feeling? Um, 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 but a wide variety of research from a whole lot of different disciplines, from psychology, from sociology, from economics, really has begun in recent years to allow people some confidence that subjective well-being is a fairly robust phenomenon, that it does 
make some sense to ask people, are you happy? And that the answer correlates to, you know, how other people perceive them, to things you can study in people's brain chemistry, to all, all kinds of things. And once you've begun to accept that, then there's a certain amount of really interesting data you can look at. For instance, every year since the end of World War II, one of the big polling firms, the National Opinion Research Center, has just flat out asked Americans, are you happy? And the number of Americans who say that they're very happy with their lives peaks in 1956. and goes slowly but fairly steadily downhill since then. Not much more than a quarter of Americans will now make the claim that they're very happy. Now, when I first heard that, my, well, my first reaction was, I wonder what was, since I was born in 1960, I was sort of curious as to what was going on in 1956. But, um, but the sort of deeper reaction is, that's very odd because, you know, that gentle downward slope coincides with the rapid upward slope in our material prosperity. The average American has about three times the standard of living as we measure these things as someone in the mid-1950s. We have way bigger houses. We take endlessly more vacations on airplanes. We have access to all kinds of variety of food. We can, you know, we have appliances that people hadn't ever even conceived of then. We can instantly download any vaguely musical sound emitted anywhere on the planet, you know, into our iPods. You know, if, in crude terms, the economy worked any sort of the way that we intuitively believe it does, there should be some, some kind of correlation between those two curves. And that they diverge like that is very interesting. And in fact, there's been a lot of work done to indicate that really around the world, once you pass a certain and fairly low level of per capita income, the correlation between more and more satisfaction evaporates uh, uh, entirely. Up to a certain point, if you're living on a sixth of an acre in China, it's very much there, but not past something on the order of $10,000 income per capita per year. Correlation, of course, isn't causation, but one of the burdens of this book of mine and of my thinking in recent years, and I think that there's a fair amount of data to support it, is that the best explanation for a lot of that dissatisfaction has to do with effects of that affluence. What have Americans spent their money on more than anything else in the years since the end of World War II. Building bigger houses farther apart from each other. That's what the, by far the largest percentage of our uh, you know, national income has gone into, the project of constructing suburbs. The most obvious physical effect of that change has been that we no longer in the course of a day run into each other as much as we used to. And to the degree we can measure it, that lack of connection and of community seems very much related to that creeping dissatisfaction. 
it probably won't surprise any of you to know that the average American has meals with friends or family or neighbors less than half as often as they did 50 years ago. The average American has something like half as many close friends as they did 50 years ago. That's a very large change in a very short period of time for an evolved social animal. I mean, we're running an experiment that hasn't been run before, and the results are not altogether um, salutary. But of course, once you start down that path, it's hard to kind of back off from it. You get more and more used to that world, and, and it's harder and harder um, um, to get back in communion with people around you. For me, the, um, there was a story in the New York Times about six months ago, and I was thinking about it today as I was flying into Colorado Springs, because from the air I could see all the uh, subdivisions being built all around town and the number of just enormous homes going in. In the story in the Times, the reporter set out to answer the kind of interesting question of what exactly is in all those houses the size of junior high schools that keep appearing on the landscape. And, and the, one of the answers is, and apparently this has now crept down into just sort of ordinary, uh, 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 you know, suburban construction, one of the answers is that Americans increasingly have dual master bedrooms in their homes. Okay. The husband snores, the wife pulls off the sheets. The American answer to this is to add 900 square feet to the house. Um, and there's a lot of that, apparently. And, I mean, you know, it's reached, a, I mean, that's a kind of, you know, the, the, the mixture of tragedy and farce in that is, is, is hard to figure out. I mean, you know, any of you who've spent much time in the developing world know that there are a lot of places where if anybody at all is lucky enough to have a bed in their house, there's three or four people sleeping in it, and nobody is worrying about who's snoring. You know, it's not an issue. Um, but there's also just something sort of sad about the idea that in the richest world, that the country that there's ever been, we're all people are increasingly sort of even hunkered down in their own small cave or large cave, kind of looking out across the hallway at their mate, you know, um, um, in their own sort of thing. To me, though, the possibility that that's what's going on is hopeful because it gives the possibility, I think, for real kind of change that might lead us in useful directions. Might manage to solve, to one degree or another, both the ecological problem that we face and this sort of social, interesting social problem that we face too. I think that the solutions to both of them lie at least in part in imagining a world that's somewhat more local whose economies are somewhat more local. I don't think it does any good to get up and preach about community, much as I'm enjoying preaching. Um, um, I don't expect it to have unbelievable impact on you. What does, however, have impact are the formation of economic institutions that almost force us to come back into contact with each other a little bit. Okay. Let me give just a couple of examples. 
The most obvious one of these, because people have been writing about it now for a couple of years, is what's going on with food in this country. You know, the industrial food system we've built is a model of uh, some kind of efficiency, but also some kind of, uh, of, of insanity. Um, the average bite of food that we eat has traveled 2,000 miles before it reaches our lips. We essentially order takeout from 2,000 miles away every night. You know, the basic operating assumption is it's always summer someplace, let's eat there. And the physical cost of that is, of course, extraordinarily high. Uh, you know, your food arrives on your plate marinated in crude oil, you know, um, um, and it's going to be increasingly difficult to maintain that in a world where we took global warming seriously and in a world where oil becomes more expensive. Which is why it's good news that the fastest growing part of the food economy in America is local farmers markets. Sales are growing 12 or 15 percent a year, which is way faster than Walmart's growing, you know, at the moment. It hasn't quite caught up to Walmart yet, but it's gaining. Um, that's good news environmentally, but it may be even sort of better news sociologically. Um, a, a pair of sociologists a couple of years ago followed shoppers first around the supermarket and then around the farmer's market. You all have been to the supermarket. You know how that works. You walk in. You fall into that light hypnotic trance. You um, visit the Stations of the Cross around the edge of the supermarket. You emerge somehow with the same basket full of stuff that you had the week before, and you carry on the interesting discussion about paper, bag, or plastic, you know, when you get to the checkout. When they, these sociologists followed shoppers around the farmer's market, they found them having 10 times more conversations per visit. It wasn't just like a different way of getting your calories for the week. It was a whole different social experience, which I think is one of the reasons that it's proving so attractive to people, um, that it's bringing people back in contact in that way, in the way that human beings have always shopped since we started having sort of agriculture and markets, you know. Um, 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 it's much more normal in any human sense than the supermarket, say, that we've developed. You can make the same argument for almost any commodity you name. Think about energy itself, the thing at the heart of our environmental troubles. Just like we made Cargill and Archer Daniels Midland kind of calorie brokers, we've made ExxonMobil and Peabody Coal and a few people like that kind of the brokers of, of BTUs and electrons in our culture. And we consume them sort of the same way. There's a few big centralized, you know, energy systems that we feed us energy and we consume it. It's the way you get TV. I mean, the signal comes one way. But it doesn't need to work that way. And with any luck, it won't work that way that much longer. I have solar panels on the roof of my house in Vermont, okay? But I'm not, and by the way, if I can have them there, I'm almost sure the <laughs> sun in Colorado Springs is more favorable for this experiment. Those solar panels are tied into the grid. That's how most new solar installations are now. It's not people off the grid. It's people tied into their network. The, the sunlight that falls on my shingles, in essence, you know, refrigerates the beer in my neighbor's kitchen. Um, 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 it works like the Internet works. I put in energy. I take out energy. Okay? That's a smart system for a number of reasons. 
One, it allows you to employ more environmentally benign technologies like solar panels more easily because they don't, they're not centralized in quite the same way. And two, I think, in the long run, it's endlessly more durable than this system we've built at the moment. You have to be a real pie-eyed optimist to think that the energy system we've rigged up at the moment is going to last all that much longer into the future. We have peak oil to deal with. We have global warming to deal with. And, you know, well, I, I'll, this is more political than I intended to get, but, you know, Vermont has lost more of its population per capita in the war in Iraq than any state in the Union. I've been to too many funerals. Um, you know, it would be nice to have energy sources that didn't require sending young men and women 5,000 miles to guard the straw through which we suck the hydrocarbons that power our economy. You can even do the same argument with things much more ephemeral, things that don't seem like hard commodities, you know. Take, uh, as a good example, one of my sort of example I think about sometimes is Music. Now, we have, at the moment, a very centralized system, just like we do for energy or food. Music comes from a few big record companies in Nashville or in Los Angeles. They produce it. They put it in extremely difficult-to-open plastic boxes, and they send it to us, okay, and we consume it. But that model is beginning to break down. Now, I'm sure that there are no students at Colorado College who engage in the illegal downloading of music. But someplace in this country, there are people doing this. Um, and it's annoying the hell out of the record company executives because it's wrecking their business model. And one of the things that they will often say is, if there's no, you know, if we can't, don't have this steady flow of CD sales and things, there'll be no incentive for recording artists to make music. In essence, music will disappear, which seems unlikely since, you know, anthropologists, correct me if I'm wrong, but pretty much every culture we know about makes music. What will disappear is that particular method of getting paid for it, and it will be replaced by something else. The fastest growing, indeed the only growing parts of the music industry are live performance, festivals, traveling jam bands like uh, Vermont's great export fish, you know. Um, um, that's it. That's what's growing, and it's growing because people value the music, but even more they seem to value the experience of listening to that music in the company of other people. Um, um, when I was writing Deep Economy, one of the statistics that stuck in my brain was this. In the year 1900, in the state of Iowa alone, there were 1,300 opera houses, okay? Which seemed bizarre. I thought that must be wrong. But then I started looking around the valley where I live in Vermont, and sure enough, every town of any size has a kind of bricked-up old hulk of what was once an opera house someplace downtown, you know, or a vaudeville theater or whatever. Now, nobody in any of those opera houses ever heard the single greatest musician in the world, probably, the way that if you were really good at picking CDs, you might hear, you know, over your CD player. But everybody who did hear them, who heard whatever they heard, 
heard it in the company of their friends and neighbors, and that may have made up for a good deal of that lack. Um, It's sweet, anyway, to think of that possibility, of that return. It's sweet to think of all of this, it seems to me, and here maybe I can figure out how to connect back up to this political stuff with which I began describing these demonstrations. You remember I said that we decided not to have a march on Washington. Everybody who knew what they were doing said, well, that's what you do. You have a march on Washington. Okay, we said, A, it didn't seem to us that people paid that much attention to them anymore. B, we knew we couldn't organize one. The first place we went, the like, website said that you had to like uh, get 2,000 porto toilets, you know, to line up. It was just, forget it. This is not going to happen. Um, but mostly we thought, A, there's something weird about telling people to crisscross the country spewing carbon behind them to protest global warming. And B, we figured people would be able to take the sort of genius of their own place and use that to make this real for their neighbors. And that's what happened. And here I was going to show you a few pictures, but as often happens with me, I'm technologically Ill, not, I'm not well adjusted to the modern age. And so things have, so you'll have to just allow me to use a sort of virtual PowerPoint technology. If it works correctly, the pictures will sort of appear in your head as I describe them. It's precisely what happened. People were, did amazing things all around the country to get this point across. Off Key West in Florida, it's the only coral reefs in the continental U.S., okay? And coral reefs are going to disappear within 50 years if we don't figure out how to quickly cease the steady heating of the ocean. The small animal that creates the coral can't survive. So instead of having a kind of normal rally, they got all kinds of people in scuba gear, and they went down and did an underwater rally um, off these coral reefs. And they had big signs, Congress, step it up, cut carbon 80% by 2050. And they're down there off these reefs, and there are these big, beautiful fish, like, swimming in and around in the middle of the demonstration. I mean, it was just unbelievably gorgeous. A little further up the coast in Jacksonville, Florida, which is a place I've never been to, but I suspect it's different from Vermont, is my guess. And um, the place that they chose as their kind of sort of iconic place, the place that really meant something in the community, was the parking lot of the Jacksonville Jaguars NFL football stadium, okay? Because that's where they have big tailgate parties with tens of thousands of people in the fall. So in the community, it's like an important gathering place. And they had a big sort of party rally there. And they got a crane and they winched a yacht 20 foot up into there. And they said, look, that's where the ocean's going to be if Greenland slides into the sea, you know? And you could just sort of hear, even a thousand miles away, sort of everybody just, you know, okay, I get it now. That makes sense to me. I spent the first part of the morning in New York City, and thousands of people came down to the battery, all wearing blue shirts, okay, and joined hands, and created this sort of sea of people, and they showed where the tide line would be in the world's most expensive real estate if, you know, if the sea rose 10 feet. Um, it was pretty dramatic to look down on it. Out 
the Rockies, um, there were people who did these long, some cases multi-day ascents up into these glaciated peaks and then skied down them in formation, sort of webcasting as they went. Um, um, because those glaciers, obviously, uh, are not long for this world. It's, you know, Glacier National Park, if you haven't been there yet, you might as well go pretty soon um, um, because they're going to need another name for it in short order. It was, we were that night in Washington, D.C., because we were having a, a kind of thing to show all these to as many bigwigs as we could gather, okay? And so we were sitting there, we were having people upload photos from all these 1,400 um, gatherings. And, and we couldn't really bring ourselves even hardly to start this party. We were just so transfixed by these pictures flooding in from across the country. It was so damn moving to see what people were able to do and how they were able to get this message across. And it was really nice to be able to gather all those images that day and made me realize that among the many unlucky things that happen at the moment, one of the lucky ones, in certain ways anyway, is that we have this new technology of the net that in certain ways allows us to be simultaneously local and larger than local. Okay? I mean, the problem in the past always was that if you were going to live in a local place and be a tight part of an intimate local community, it meant in a certain sense surrendering some participation in the larger world. And a lot of people left those small to go out into the larger world. It's less of a choice now than it was before because there's always a window open onto that larger world, you know, and it's possible for new ideas to blow in and to blow old prejudices and parochialisms out. Um, um, that's a change, and one we haven't fully figured out how to make perfect use of yet, but experiments like this one that we were doing with Step It Up really helped. And now we're trying again this fall. I hope you'll go to the website, stepitup07.org, and I hope someone will make sure that they're organizing something here for that day, November 3rd. This time we're putting a real emphasis on inviting all our political leaders, all our senators, all our congressmen, all the candidates for those offices, making sure that they all get invited to come talk because we need them to tell us what, who among them is planning to be a leader on this issue because we need leaders. And we're doing many of them this time in places that, that honor great leaders of the American past. So the top of Mount Washington. Rachel Carson's birthplace, the site of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, Teddy Roosevelt's birthplace, um, um, on and on and on down that kind of list. Not because those people were saints, many of them weren't, but because faced with the horrible, whatever the issue of their day was, they rose to the occasion and they seized the moment. Let me just finish by saying that that movement Building that movement is the work of the moment that we've got to undertake. And it's wonderful to see it finally starting to happen and see it starting to happen in all kinds of communities. Look, I knew that I could organize Middlebury College where I lived. You know, it's that kind of place. But I was completely blown away five or six days into this 
uh, after we launched this Step It Up thing, when the picture arrived via email from the University of Texas at Austin, from a sorority, the Alpha Phi sorority chapter, and there are 180 sorority girls there looking just the way you would expect sort of Texas sorority women to look like. Every one of them could smile wider than anyone in Vermont can smile, you know. Um, um, and they had a big sign, step it up, Congress cut carbon 80% by 2050. And they wrote a little note that went with it that said, we wanted to show it wasn't just the hippies who cared. And, and I thought that was the sweetest thing I'd ever seen because you know what? It is hippies. It's people like, well, you know, in a sense like me or probably like some of you who see the world a little off kilter that start things. But it's sorority chapters and evangelical congregations and so on and so forth that finish things off, that bring them into the mainstream where they can't be denied. And that's what happened last year. We took this once radical goal of 80% by 2050 and established it very firmly into the debate such that when the Republican John Warner introduced his climate change legislation last week, it called for 70% reductions by 2050. And that was pretty much a triumph to have gotten, you know, that to be the conservative end of the spectrum, you know, to have raised the bar that far. And now we've got to bring it home and bring it home fast. Um, and for me, Given that we live, and I've, I'm afraid I've done too good a job of painting in certain ways the depressing picture about, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a sort of depressing guy. I wrote a book called The End of Nature, you know. That's my thing. Um, um, you know, we're in for some very tough times. Um, even if we do everything right, we're not going to stop global warming. We're just going to slow it down a little bit. The world is going to be in a tougher place than it's been for the last period of time. And we're going to need to build those strong communities, not only to prevent some of that carbon from going into the atmosphere and hence slowing down climate change, but we're also going to need strong communities to, to survive what's coming at us more easily than we otherwise would, you know. Um, neighbors are actually going to be important again. They're going to have some practical need for them, the way that humans always have had practical need for neighbors. That's been the biggest and oddest part of the American experiment in the last 50 years, to create a society where no one needs their neighbors for anything. You know, One of the ways to build those communities are the local economic institutions that I've been describing. And another way to build those communities is going to be in the act of political struggle to do the things that we have to do. It is incredibly rewarding to be deeply involved in that work. It is just beginning. We need every one of you deeply involved in that work. This struggle has to be as morally urgent, as demanding of sacrifice, as the civil rights movement was a generation ago. If it is, then we stand a chance. And it's therefore a real great pleasure for me to get to spend a night in this community of people who've already begun to take steps. And I will very much look forward to seeing many of you further down this road in the years ahead as this fight goes on.
Thank you very much. Now, I've, I've talked longer than I meant to. I, that pulpit thing turned out to be true. Um, so I won't mind if anybody just wants to leave and go out into that pretty night. But if there are people who have questions, it would be all right to have a few, yes? There's a microphone someplace right down here. I can't really see much. but Questions or comments or abuse or whatever would be just fine. Um, I'm a little disappointed in the uh, gap between caring, activism, and results. Uh, tomorrow uh, at 1 o'clock, Colorado Springs Utilities Board meets at the south tower of the uh, uh, Plaza of the Rockies. Colorado Springs Utilities is poised to choose um, their likely scenario of 125 megawatt coal and tire burning power plants south of town. Despite the fact that 83% of the residents of Colorado Springs have said that they want renewable energy and they're poised to do, or poised, or they're ready to pay more, uh, Colorado Springs Utilities is very slow to accept this and move that way. So I would invite everyone here to um, be more of an activist and camp out on this situation because there's a great opportunity right now to make a difference. That's very good to hear. One of the things that we're really stressing this time around with Step It Up, and it's really got to be a basic demand of the movement about global warming, is no new coal plants of any kind. Coal, and there's 150 coal-fired power plants on the books in this country. If they get built, any significant portion of them gets built, all the other discussion about global warming is moot. They'll pour so much carbon into the atmosphere in the 50 or 60 years that they're running that there's just not even much reason to continue the rest of the discussion. So that's a basic bottom line, have-to-do-it demand here and around the country now. So I'm glad that there's some activism going on here, and good luck with it, and we'll do what we can to help you um, you know, from the from back east. I'm with the Pikes Peak Justice and Peace Commission, and we have a sustainable living group. And out in the narthex, we have a table where we have petitions. Uh, so if you have not signed the petition, it has to do with asking the, the utility company to do a lot more in the way of sustainable uh, energy, a lot more than they've already done. And the more signatures we have, the better, because we're going to take it to the meeting tomorrow. So please come out and sign it. Thank please you. do. Yeah. And you know what? If you can hold them off on building a coal-fired power plant for another couple of years, that's all it's going to take. Two or three years from now, we're not even going to be talking in these terms anymore. We will have made the political transition toward trying to put less and less carbon in the atmosphere. I hope we will have made it. I trust we will have made it. We're going to have to have made it. Um, there's really no other way around that. You know, our premier climate scientist in this country, James Hansen from NASA, federal employee, said two years ago that his computer modeling was now showing quite clearly that we had less than 10 years to reverse the flow of carbon into the atmosphere worldwide 
where we would overshoot the mark past which climate change would be not merely miserable and difficult, but truly catastrophic, that we could no longer guarantee the stability of the great ice sheets over Greenland and the West Antarctic, that we might face sea level rise even in this century on the order of 18 or 20 feet, uh, which would rewrite the map of the world so profoundly that it's almost impossible to contemplate. So it is a huge and important battle, and I'm really glad that you guys are fighting the necessary fight here. Um, I'm not sure that I understood uh, the basic principles of your book, mm. um, your most recent book. I, I would have thought that you would have come out with something called deep humanity, perhaps, instead of deep economy, because it strikes me that the actual problem isn't an economic problem. It's a problem about uh, the kinds of creatures that we are. And in your book, you talk about finding a new utilitarian um, ethic, and uh, you, you use that kind of motivation to go into um, your discussion of the economics of more and less. Mm. And it's, I mean, as far as I could tell, all that was really muddy um, and not very well thought out. And I, I'm wondering if, if people are interested in some of the things that you said, and they're interested in community, but they don't have the principles right, um, it strikes me that anybody who um, is persuasive enough can move them. <clears throat> and so you end up with a, a, a movement growing. And with utilitarian principles, um, one of the ways out of the particular problem we're in right now is to eliminate a portion of the population, which I think is probably morally suspect. <laughs> and uh, unless you have some reasons to... Uh, when I said we needed a new utilitarianism, what I meant was we needed to think about what actually made for satisfying lives in this world. Um, we needed to stop calculating how to get more oh, and needed to start calculating on a lot more bottom lines than that. Um, we needed to think about ecological durability and we needed to think about human satisfaction and that those were at this point more important than trying to figure out about economic expansion, which has been, as I say, the only goal of our economic life. Now, I don't think, I mean, it's possible that this takes a deep shift in the creature that we are to allow this to happen, okay? But if that's the case, then we're out of luck because it seems unlikely to me that we're going to accomplish shifts on that order in the time that science provides us to deal with these questions pinching in on us. And I don't think that it has fundamental things to do with human nature. I think, actually, there are I mean, quite easy and obvious examples of people who have approached the world a little bit differently with remarkably different results. People here in this room been to Western Europe in recent years? France, Germany, Italy, anybody? A few of you, yes? You'll testify to the rest that people in those countries lead reasonably decent and dignified lives, yes? Um, in fact, it's maybe even possible to argue that, that, say, Paris has a quality of life as high as Phoenix or whatever. Um, um, here's one of the things that's interesting about Western Europe. They've managed to do that on half the energy per capita that Americans use. Half is a big number. 
It's a bigger number than we're going to get from all the alternative technologies we could sit and describe tonight. It's because I think they've made subtly different choices on this spectrum that runs from hyper-individualism on one end to community on the other. You know, they've paid more of their income in taxes, and they've used it to build cities that draw people in instead of spinning them forever further out. They've used it to build mass transit systems. And then once they've got the darn train, they actually take it, you know. Um, um, they rearrange their lives by 5 or 10 or 15 minutes here or there to ride the train instead of everything having to circle constantly around them all the time. That's a change in our understanding of who we are, maybe to use your phrase, a, a change in our sense of humanity. But it's not an impossible one to contemplate. It doesn't involve, you know, a, a sort of complete re-engineering of, of who we are, where we come from. It involves reflecting more deeply on what we want out of the world than we have so far, at least in recent years. And for me, that hyper-individualism, I mean, that's what cheap fossil fuel allowed us to, to do, to become the most individualistic set of people that there ever were. And it didn't work out that well. It hasn't worked out that well. It's wrecking the world, and it's not making us particularly pleased. And from those two realizations may come enough sort of human energy to allow us to make some of the changes we need to make in the time we need to make them. That's the only point I was trying to make in this book. Thank you. Well, I wasn't going to say this, but after that, I, I just want to say that I do think that we're in a unique um, position as humans. Um, we are complicated creatures, and I think that we do have bad traits, but we have... Uh, the unique opportunity to choose the future of our consciousness, you know, or choose our evolution. And I think that we can transcend what we used to be and become the things that we want to be. And so maybe this global warming issue will give us that opportunity. Um, but anyway, I was just going to do a shameless um, advertisement for the Pikes Peak Environmental Forum. Uh, so I'm reaching out to friends and neighbors to come to that, which is um, the fourth Friday of every month at the Antlers Hilton Grill. And we have a variety of speakers. And the next speaker is Dave Gardner with Save the Springs. And he's going to be doing um, uh, Growth Busting, which is his new documentary series about sustainability. So I just wanted to do a shameless ad about that. So thank Fantastic. you. Fantastic. <laughs> thank you. That's, you know, use, I mean, it's very good to see occasions like this used to build just the kind of community. And, you know, while you were talking, I was thinking of uh, one of the possible places to hold a great and very helpful rally for this Step It Up thing on November 3rd would be the top of Pikes Peak. And one of the people you could honor would be, and I'm now going to forget her name, Thank you. Uh, uh, who wrote the single most beautiful um, tribute, among other things, to America's physical environment that we've just about had? Um, um, if it were up to me, I wrote the other day someplace. You know, we would the national anthem would alternate weeks back and forth between "America the Beautiful" and "This Land Is Your Land." Um, um, uh, so I think that'd be a great place to have a a good rally on November third.
I'm Bill Young. I'm with uh, Community Voice. And in listening to what you said and, and what I've observed, it seems like the majority of people in the country realize the issues and the problems, and they lack a desire to do something about it. Um, you talked about food and how far that travels, but there's not a lot of talk about how far our clothing's traveling, how far our entertainment is traveling in order to get to us. And we are not living a very sustainable life in, in any fashion, in my opinion. And I'm wondering if you have ideas around political will to make change. It seems to me that the Democrats and the Republicans are tied into the grid and don't have a desire to make changes. And I would like you to comment on that. Well, I think that's very true. Everybody is tied into the kind of growth model that we've been a part of. I mean, it was Bill Clinton who said, it's the economy, stupid. You know, the sort of greatest underlining of this we've almost ever had. That said, I think one of the reasons it's difficult for people to sort of just break out of this on their own um, is that it seems so futile to do things by yourself. And that's the reason that, you know, I spend now almost all my time working on political, large-scale political activism. Our kind of unofficial slogan at Step It Up became, you know, because it became, you know, screw in the new light bulb, but then screw in the new congressman, you know, um, um, and, and screw in the new federal policy, you know. And people really, that's, that's who was taking this challenge up. It was all the people, and we kept hearing this from people saying, you know, I put the new light bulb in over my kitchen table, and even as I was doing it, I thought to myself, this may not quite solve global warming, you know. Um, um, what next? And it's not easy getting back into that, you know, people, we feel powerless to a large extent. And partly that's because there's an enormous amount of power on the other side, you know, and there's no use pretending that there isn't. ExxonMobil made $40 billion in profit last year. They made more profit than any company in the history of profit. $40 billion, or a tiny fraction of that, is enough to purchase large parts of Capitol Hill and make sure that your interests are protected. We could probably pool the money of everyone in this room and come up somewhere short of $40 billion, okay? <laughs> so we're unlikely to beat them in that fashion. But, you know, remember that Republican congresswoman I was describing in Vermont. A thousand people marching across the state were enough to change, you know, that power is real too. We haven't been using it. It's time to use it. And it's too early to say that it won't work. Um, um, I don't got anything else to give you. We don't have enough time to, you know, radically reinvent our political structure. We don't have enough time to come up with a whole sort of new religious system. I mean, we're going to use what we've got. And, and happily, I think there's enough there. I think there's enough in our faith traditions. And it's now really starting to come to the fore. And it's exciting to see that happening, to see the birth of a religious environmental movement. I think there's enough, maybe, in our political life. It's exciting to see the change that we've seen even in the last year on Capitol Hill. And let me just finish saying, at least on global warming, 
there may not be enough difference between Democrats and Republicans and things, but you know what? It's been the guy who used to be in charge of all global warming policy in Washington, the guy that Washington had decided was the person that should, everything should go through, was a senator from Oklahoma named James Inhofe. Okay? And his take on global warming, as he once said, was that it was the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on the American public. And to make sure that he didn't change his mind in any fundamental way, the last time when he was in charge of things and he was holding hearings on this question, the only witness that he invited was the novelist Michael Crichton, okay, to come and buttress his point of view. So frankly, I'm happy that, you know, we have, you know, that my senator from Vermont, Bernie Sanders, is playing a key role in figuring out what the new energy legislation is going to be this year. Um, some things change, and they'll change more if we work it harder, I hope. Thank you. Uh, looking around the room, I realize that most people here, maybe the majority, are not actually college students. Um, but regardless, I think this goes for everyone. Um, I sort of had the epiphany this summer that everything that I thought I would do with my life was wrong because I didn't factor climate change in there and that climate change, just coming to terms with the immensity of it, um, has been a strange thing for me. And I just wanted to know, I would be interested to know what you think as people who are in college right now about to go out into the real world and what would you, where do we start? What do we do to do something about this that will work? The good news is, okay, that this is such a huge question that people who have almost any sort of set of interests, skills, whatever, can figure out a way to take effective action on it in their lives and in their careers, okay? English majors, that, you know, I'm a writer. Um, 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 I mean, you know, English majors, well, it's always a problem. But the, um, um, a way to think about it is like this, okay? Maybe even a way to think about it is to stop thinking about it as, a, as like a problem or a sort of issue to be dealt with, but instead as sort of the new lens through which we're going to look at the world. For the last hundred years, the lens in which we've looked at the world is economic. I mean, we've, decisions that we've made have been, you know, you, you answer the decision tree down to the question, does this make the economy larger or not? And if it does, then chances are it's going to happen, okay? Your own individual economy, the national economy, whatever. That can't be the question anymore. The prism has to increasingly be, does this allow for a durable society or not? And... Um, so, you know, if you're an economist, if you're a business person, there are all kinds. I mean, it's going to be a huge transition of energy sources. Um, 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 it's going to be the biggest economic and engineering task we've ever undertaken. Um, if you're a theologian, if you're, a, you know, a, a, in political science, whatever it is. And it's especially important to kind of make that point at a college or a university. Because this is the first issue in a long time that really 
demands all those disciplines working together. I mean, less true at a college, but you know, I mean, even a university, the 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 you know, in a certain sense, even higher education has increasingly taken as its job producing people to go out and be parts of the growing economy, right? And to a certain degree, all the rest of the stuff that we do at a college is slightly sort of uh, a pleasant window dressing off to the side. You know, philosophy, English, whatever it is, it's nice. We learn about it, it's good. It's what I do. But the serious stuff has always been about, you know, the economy. We're now in an emergency that requires us to draw on those disciplines, not for a kind of you know, aesthetically balancing our lives or whatever else, but for the very real and important insights they have into human nature, into the nature of groups, into our, you know, into all the things we need to understand if we're going to make a change this big, this fast. So in that sense, it's an all right time if you're sort of conscious of what's going on to be coming out into the world, you know. But the only thing that you have to do is no matter what else you're doing, you've got to be a part of the political movement that's trying to do something about this, too. Um, that's the one civic obligation I think falls on all of us right now. Um, and, you know, it's, it's the question that, you know, if you have children or grandchildren, they will ask you what you were doing um, in that fight at that time. Um, and they'll be asking you, what kind of car were you driving, you know, and, and whatever else. Good question. Thank you. Good. I'm John Weiss with The Independent, and your provocative talk gave me something I wanted to ask you and ask the audience. If politicians cannot see the light, they'll feel the heat. And initially, when many people in this room supported a trails open space in parks, tax in Colorado Springs, people said it couldn't work. And then we mobilized and we had 22 of the 23 candidates running for city council and mayor of Colorado Springs ended up supporting it. And since that time, the TOPS measure up to 2025 will raise about $100 million here. That's a real money for buying trails open, spark, pays, open, trails open space in parks. Question, if we put about... I, believe, I like the idea of a petition, but I don't believe a petition is going to change Colorado Springs utilities' minds. Colorado Springs has a petition measure. If we put a measure on the ballot, and I'm not sure what the ballot measure would be, but that would force them not to have to undo this vote by a vote of the people, that would probably cause them to have to delay this for two years, and who knows, even Colorado Springs might vote for it. So my question to you is, has any community put something on the ballot dealing with climate change that would actually cause a coal plant not to be built? And if so, how did it, how did it look? I don't know. That, I don't, I'm not sure there's a perfect analog to that. Most, I mean, there's been great work in municipalities around the country. Things have been so blocked off in Washington that a lot of energy has gone to the state and local level. And so there's been a lot of work. Much more of it's tended to be about sort of energy conservation and, and renewables and things. And I don't know if there's been a, uh, because of course almost, you're in the odd position of having a publicly owned utility. Yes, um, I mean most utilities, of course, are privately owned and they're state, they're regulated from 
state capitals. Um, and so it's more difficult. But it would be a tremendous um, um, victory to do just that. And you know what? It might not be impossible to do. The mood, the sort of mood, among other things, on Wall Street about the willingness to underwrite uh, uh, the construction of coal-fired power plants is changing. It's getting harder with each passing week. People, there was a big move today by state treasurers from around the country to force um, uh, uh, companies, all kinds of companies, to figure the climate risk of their whatever they were doing as part of their financial statement every year. And it's especially hard for coal-fired utilities to do that because you know, their business model may not work if we take global warming at all seriously. The price of coal is going to go through the roof. Um, um, and so it would be very possible that a, a stiff fight and some delay might be enough to really accomplish what needs accomplishing here. Hi. Um, I'm 18 years old. My name is Chris. I'm from Arlington, Virginia. Um, and I was wondering, I, I don't know, I spent some time like watching the news and I wasn't hearing about uh, I don't know, our national eating disorder or like, uh, I don't know, sustainability issues until I started reading like Michael Pollan and Alan Wiseman and yourself. And I was wondering what can we do to like get this accurate like information into, into the mainstream media and out of the underground and out of like, I don't know, radical activist magazines and like. Yeah, it's a very good question. And the media, you know, I mean, I'm a journalist by background, and it's been a great failure. I mean, probably no greater failure in journalistic history than the dealing with global warming because people were, you know, just kept writing the same dumb story about, on the one hand, this, and here's another guy who says the opposite long past the point when there was any real credible science on the other side. Um, um, it's beginning to change. Yeah. One of the things that is helping it change is the rise of media that are, uh, you know, that don't depend on that kind of ownership. The rise of the web is doing interesting things to journalism, and there's being a kind of, in certain places, a sort of synthesis of journalism and um, activism that's really useful. Um, and it, it, this doesn't answer your question about how we're going to change mainstream <laughs> well, journalism. Well, answer, but any suggestions? If, there's, if, if you're looking for good information, anybody yeah. here, one place to go if you're interested in the environment, one yeah. of the best websites in the uh, country is a thing called grist.org, G-R-I-S-T.org. It does a wonderful job of covering environmental news in a really useful way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, happily... Um, that's beginning to rub off elsewhere. The New York Times is a lot different than it was on this stuff five years ago. And as the New York Times goes, so go other parts of slowly the journalistic establishment. And I will add that reality has a way of um, changing even the hardest heads. Rupert Murdoch, the owner of Fox News Channel and um, the Wall now the Wall Street Journal, um, is from Australia. Australia has been suffering through the most epic drought that anyone has ever seen. I mean, it's just beyond anything we've experienced here, at least since the Dust Bowl. Rupert Murdoch said three weeks ago that his entire News Corp empire was going to be carbon neutral within three years, and he was going to tell all his properties, all his newspapers and TV stations and things, to start spreading the alarm about global warming. So, you know... 
if Rupert Murdoch can be converted, there's, you know, the Holy Spirit is clearly hard at work, <laughs> is all I can say. Now, let's hope. The news will report the news. Two more, they say. Okay, good. And there's two more out there, so that's good. Yeah, thank you for coming and speaking. Um, I don't want to spend... Oh, what was that website you just mentioned? Grist. G-R-I-S-T dot org. Grist. Grist. Okay. Grist. Like grist for the mill. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I don't want to spend my whole minute talking about the news media, but I do have... Since you didn't even mention it tonight, um, I had on the BBC feed from the local NPR station Friday morning, and they mentioned that... Um, uh, President Bush's chief scientist has, I'm sorry, I forget his name, has finally gone on the record and in this interview with the BBC, I guess, you know, said, you know, CO2, yes, it does cause global warming. And this is mostly, maybe not totally, but it's mostly, this is a man-made effect and, you know, so on. I mean, I, I was literally standing in my kitchen with my jaw hanging. I didn't think I was going to hear or see anything like this in the next 25 years. Uh, I was just wondering if you have an opinion why I, and I don't have a TV, I don't have TV news at home, I listen to the radio, but I haven't heard this mentioned on NPR, uh, and you didn't mention, I was just wondering, you know, do people know about this? Was this just something on the radio at four in the morning? You know, Bush and, his, and, and the administration have become, they've, they've all in the last year, Bush said, yes, the planet does seem to be warming. You know, and he's actually called a meeting of major emitters that will arrive in uh, um, uh, Washington next week to begin sort of discussions. It's widely seen as a way to uh, uh, derail the effective sort of climate talks that are going on internationally. But at least they're sort of – it, it's merely just that what I've been saying. The reality of it is so large now that there's no longer any way to, with any credibility to just completely stonewall, you know? Mm. Um, um, and the pressure is now – I mean, just in the same way that, you know, earlier this week he finally said we actually may bring a few troops home from Iraq. You know, the pressure had reached that point. So with this. But I don't think there's really anyone who thinks that we're going to see significant political action – in the next 18 months. Um, basically, what we're playing for politically is what's going to happen in the first five months of the next administration. Um, and that's what we're trying to get our ducks in a row for, and it's why we have to take such strong action now, soon, so we can have that movement to the point where whoever is elected and wants to do something about this will have the backing to do it. It's always going to be a wickedly hard fight because the other side has so much money. But it's maybe doable in this window that's coming up. We will see. Okay, and just a quick question, comment. Um, people like you, especially, who write the books, who are in national media and literally up at the podium and so on, the I just want to say Europe has just been briefly mentioned, like all of one minute or something tonight. And I just wanted to say I consider them to be a very important part of the equation. And there are a lot of good European thinkers and things Absolutely. that are being written. You know, like Alan de Beno is mostly, his writings are imprisoned in French and so on. But that stuff does exist. And you know what? The example that the Europeans are giving us is quite remarkable on this. They're not doing everything right, but they're, they're you know, 
They've now challenged the U.S. to cut carbon emissions 30 percent by 2020. So if you promise to do it, we'll promise to do it. The reason that that's really remarkable is what I told you before about how they're already using half as much energy per capita. For Europe to make those cuts, they're going to be cutting into muscle. It's going to be hard to do. For us, 30 percent just means stopping some of the most egregious waste that we undertake every day. We've got plenty. I mean, it's like losing weight by cutting your hair, you know. Um, um, we get, um, you know, for us, so much easier. And so the fact that it's the Europeans that are leading should be a source of a certain amount of shame for us, I think. Yeah, you've alluded to it briefly before, but could you speak about global warming in the context of peak oil and, and for that matter, peak natural gas? For example, when we're on the downslope of the supply of those and the prices are really high, won't we be burning a lot more coal? That'll be the easiest thing to do. Yeah, that's the problem. Um, peak oil may cause us to – I mean, basically, I think the way that people are looking at it at the moment, people like Jim Hansen said recently – it's pretty clear we're going to burn almost every drop of oil that we can get our hands on. It's going to be very difficult to keep much oil in the ground, okay? Just too valuable. Um, we should obviously slow down the rate at which we're burning it so it lasts longer and we can but, – but it's coal that's the real issue. That's, you know, what we do with our coal supply, China's coal supply, India's coal supply, Africa's coal supply is going to determine whether or not we – push the CO2 levels in the atmosphere past the danger, past the just catastrophe threshold or not. And there is, you know, as we run out of oil, the temptation is going to be to substitute coal for it, you know, to build ever more coal-fired power plants and to use that electricity to do everything from run cars to heat homes to whatever. Um, and, you know, when Admiral Woolsey speaks here in a week or when is he coming? October 4th. I mean, that'll be one of, I mean, he, if you think about energy mostly from a kind of energy security thing and American energy independence and things, it leads you in that direction of burning more and more coal. And that's, it's a grave danger. Peak oil is a huge problem. It's going to change the way we live. The only thing to be said for it is it's not going to have, you know, sort of, geological effects measured in hundreds of thousands of years the way that climate change clearly is going to unless we get under control very, very fast. They're twin problems. Their solutions lie, I think, in the same direction. And especially in the case of peak oil, the need to build durable local economies and durable communities that can thrive or at least survive in a situation that's not the one we're used to now is really important. The economy we've built works very well to produce lots and lots of stuff, okay? It's a thoroughbred economy. It's optimized for perfect conditions. It's built on cheap oil. If that set of perfect conditions disappears, like any overbred thing, it's going to be in big trouble. We need workhorse economies, um, a little slower but a little sturdier, too. And that's one of the appeals of this move towards a more localized way of looking at the world. But at the same time we're doing that, we have no choice but to engage in national and international political change. 
And it's a contradictory message that I've left you with, you know. Start a local farmer's market and start a national and international protest movement. I wish I could tell you we could do one or the other and it would work. We've got to do both. Um, it's an interesting moment. Thank you all. Mm.